Hello folks, a very warm welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, you one man and his true crime enthusiast cat, North Wales based true crime show that seeks out for your ears some of the usually unfamiliar, often obscure or long forgotten dark tales of darker deeds from the length and breadth of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The little bell that you may hear in parts of the episode is my true crime enthusiast cat, Peaks. And you guys are of course you guys, the wonderful enthusiasts who make the show happen and worthwhile doing. It's fantastic as ever to be back with you and have you joining me here today. And I hope that as you're hearing me, then you and yours are all good and well. So in a tried and tested manner, because I don't think that you should bugger about with something if it doesn't need it. Thanks firstly this time around very much for your feedback concerning the show's previous episode, The Torso in the Tank. Now there's a lot of questions with that one isn't there and I won't recap it here as it is available for you to hear should you haven't already heard it but it is one that I thought was a remarkable story as did you guys too I gather. Now she'll be discussing this episode and others further in a new feature that I've decided to trial and do for Patreon supporters of the show. What I've decided is that going forward in addition to the monthly bonus Patreon episode I'll also upload for subscribers perhaps a bit of a YouTube live video where I'll discuss the cases that have covered on the show each month. And if anybody wants to chip in through the comments then I'll respond as best I can do. Who knows, you may even get to see Peaks if he can be arsed and looking at him now he's flat out and he doesn't look very arsed at all. But I'll have a test run of it first to see if I'm happy with doing it and if it flows okay. And by the way, it won't be no Leslie Grantham finger-sucking bloody malarkey either. I'm just clarifying that. I'll not be bare-arse doing it or anything. On the subject of Patreon, big thanks to the show's returning and new Patreon supporters, with shout-outs going around this time to Paul Pachoni, Heather Wright, Kate Good, Jack and Laura Duncan, Richard Blades, Angela Jones, Alison Ferguson, Sheila Harper, Victoria Seymour, Jen Mecklenburg, Catherine, SCL and Mia. Apologies if I've pronounced anybody's name wrong there. It's great of you to support the show guys, thank you so much and I hope that you found the unreleased bonus episodes of the show, I think there's some 20 now, both informative and interesting ones. Bonus episode number 33 will be coming before the end of the month and if you folks out there fancy a bit of extra enthusiast like these guys and you want to hear tales such as the imaginatively titled Murdering Lincoln, the Samaritan and the Salvationist, the Madness at Mother Max, or the latest one, A Lonely Death on Gun Hill, then it's easy as pie and quicker than Djokovic can hit a tennis ball at an umpire, you could be hearing these and plenty of others. Just head over to Patreon and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, always remember that podcast suffix, or you can use the link that's ever present in the episode show notes. I'd like to remind you as well that should you have a case in mind that you'd like to hear recounted on the show, perhaps it's one that's long held your interest or one that you have a connection with, perhaps it's local to you, perhaps concerning someone known to you, then I'm constantly open to anyone who wants to get in touch and suggest it. You know the type that we look for on the show by now. Whatever you fancy along those lines, please get in touch if you want to. I'll always get back to you about it and I've had some really interesting ones that I'm not familiar with at all come through that have gone straight onto the chalkboard. Now each of these names will get the time, they will come around at some point on the show, but the case concerned with this episode, and the next one of the show at least, because there's a bit to this tale, isn't one that's been suggested before. And I'm surprised to be honest by that because it's a truly remarkable tale this one is. It's horrific, and when you hear the full story as the tale unfolds, I'm sure it'll invoke a mix of feelings and emotions within you. It certainly did me when I was researching and writing it. You'll be shocked and baffled and appalled in parts. You'll feel pity, loathing and contempt in others. But overall, I hope that once you've heard it, you're left with a sense of admiration. Now that may sound a strange noun to use there, but as it unfolds I hope that you'll get what I mean and I'll try and express why I say admiration as best that I can. The case featured for the next couple of episodes involves the horrific murder of a young woman that took place back in 1978 in the city of Derby. What seemingly was an open and shut case actually wasn't and it took the patience, persistence, determination and overall devotion of a family to see that justice was eventually served in a groundbreaking legal case. 
I stress also eventually. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. And I must warn that also, throughout the episodes there are occasional uses of racial slurs and discriminatory terms. Now these are not repeated here wishing to offend at all, and these are not the views of myself or the show, I must stress that. But are recounted here purely as when they are used, they form an integral part of a statement or the story. And as ever, we go all or nothing here on the show, don't we? Bearing this in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we begin a tale I've entitled A Family's Fight with Part 1, Lynn's Story. So to begin our tale, we're off back to 1978, the year that the true crime enthusiast became more than a twinkle, and to the city of Derby in the county of Derbyshire in the East Midlands of the UK. Twinned with Osnabrück in Germany, and home to almost a quarter of a million people, Derby is steeped in history. It has a claim to be one of the birthplaces of the Industrial Revolution, as it's reportedly the location where the world's first factory stood, a place occupied today by Derby Silk Mill. It was also the location of the first public park in England, Derby Arboretum, and Derby Cathedral reportedly has the world's oldest ring of ten bells, as well as since 2006 being the home to a nesting pair of peregrine falcons. I hope nobody fell asleep when I was going through that then. Notable people to hail from Derby include Michelin-starred chef Sat Baines, the co-founder of Blur, Graham Coxon, and just to clarify, there was never any contest back in the 90s. It was Oasis all the way. Pioneer of modern nursing, Cheer the Lamp, Florence Nightingale's also from there. Along with Britain's first female foreign secretary, Dame Margaret Beckett. And musicians, MC Youngman and grime MC Dubsy. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got all of their albums in my car. Mmm, yeah. But my top stat this time around is that it's Derby is where the wet dream of many a young one-handed bedroom dweller was brought to life. Lara Croft, as it's Derby where the game Tomb Raider was developed. And even a city, a section of the city's inner ring road was even renamed Lara Croft Way in 2010 in homage to this. That's a good stat or what that, isn't it? Derby was also the home to police cadet Ian Hardwick, who'd left the city to begin a career in the Metropolitan Police in 1977, and over the second weekend of April 1978, was back home on leave visiting his parents. Whilst home over his leave, he'd caught up with friends and family, and on the afternoon of Sunday the 9th of April, was out cycling with his brother and a friend along a towpath that skirts the 93.5 mile long Trenton Mersey Canal which runs from the River Trent through Derbyshire, Staffordshire and Cheshire, and links to the River Mersey through its connection to the Bridgewater Canal at Preston Brook. Fancying a change from cycling to walking, the three boys had passed bridge number 16, Barrow Bridge, and had decided to secure up their bikes near here and make their way down to Swarkstone Lock on foot, enjoying the crisp April afternoon. At about 4.30pm, as Ian was idly swinging about a stick that he'd picked up, he sent it spinning into the dense undergrowth that skirted part of the path near bridge number 15, Lowe's Bridge, and went in to retrieve it. He was back out of the undergrowth a moment later, shaken, but with his limited police training having kicked in instantly, touch nothing, secure the scene, and request assistance. Because when Ian went to retrieve his stick, Staring up at him from the undergrowth were a bundle of clothes that he at first thought was a discarded mannequin, until he saw the lifeless eyes of the mud-stained young woman. He'd even actually touched her right foot with his own. Ian said later, For some reason I thought it was a dummy. It could be because the skin was stretched tight and looked like plastic. Now it's never a dummy though, sadly, is it? The three boys ran along the path and over Lowe's Bridge to summon assistance, but found that the first house that they came to wasn't on the telephone. But as luck would have it, however, a taxi driver was parked up nearby, and seeing the obvious shock and sincerity on the boys' faces, went off to summon police as the three boys made their way back to mark and protect the scene, awaiting police arrival. When police arrived minutes later, they weren't prepared for the disturbing scene that awaited them. 
In undergrowth off the towpath, the body of the young woman lay on her back, fully clothed in jeans, a blue and white shirt, a red t-shirt and a blue and white jacket. The clothing, although it was sodden from the rain, was clearly heavily bloodstained, so much so that the initial thought of police was that to cause such blood loss, she must have been blasted at close range with a 12-bore shotgun. And she'd clearly lain there for some time, evidenced by the marks that insects and wild animals had left on her face. As a team of officers sealed off the towpath for a considerable distance either side of the body and awaited the arrival of Home Office pathologist Professor Alan Usher to the scene, who we actually met in the latest Patreon bonus episode I seem to recall, inquiries began at the properties and farmhouses in the area. A fingertip search of the area also got underway and almost immediately turned up the black plastic handle of a kitchen carving type knife in the undergrowth near the body. When Professor Usher arrived, darkness was fast falling, and after pronouncing the girl dead, a cursory examination of the body confirmed that it was a young woman aged in her mid to late teens. The scene was photographed and documented, and the body was then removed to the mortuary at Derby Royal Infirmary for a full post-mortem to be undertaken. Now this examination showed that this had been an auburn-haired, well-developed 15 to 16 year old female, that Professor Usher now estimated to have been dead for between four and six days, and although when found the girl's jeans had been unzipped and unfastened, and her upper clothing pulled up, her underwear was intact and in place, and there was no evidence of any or any attempted sexual assault. There was evidence of bruising and scratching to the girl's throat, as well as bruising to the top of her breastbone and behind her left ear, marks suggesting that her throat had been compressed by a hand or hands, or a forearm. But the mass blood loss that was evident from the state of the girl's dirty, dishevelled clothing wasn't from a shotgun blast at all. It was from the 43 knife wounds that had been inflicted upon her in a maniacal frenzy. 43. But the wounds themselves, or at least some of them, were curious. They covered her body, the majority of them deep and savage, including 10 major stab wounds underneath the girl's left armpit and a selection of four-inch deep knife wounds to a pelvic region and lower abdomen, which had pierced her underwear and perforated the lower bowel, the liver, the diaphragm, and had even severed an artery to the kidney. But underneath the girl's navel, there were 11 tiny stab wounds, cursory pinprick wounds, more of a jab really, caused by the tip of a knife, and a long horizontal scratch in the upper quarter of the abdomen, that looked as though it had been inflicted by a knife with a serrated edge, as if a killer or killers were at first toying with her. Ultimately, Professor Usher determined that cause of death was due to asphyxia caused by compression of the neck, which had been contributed to by shock and blood loss from the multiple stab wounds. Evidence taken from the girl's lungs revealed the presence of algae, suggesting that she'd inhaled water. At some point, either before or at the point of death, the killer had forced her face down into stagnant water, attempting to drown her. There are no words needed there, really, are there? But just as Professor Usher was performing his post-mortem and musing over his findings, not only were police convinced that they knew, sadly, who the young woman was, but before the findings were complete, they had a suspect in custody and a confession. At 11pm that evening, two CID officers from Derbyshire Constabulary walked up the path and knocked at the door of Number 1 Carlisle Street in the Derby suburb of Sinfin, just three miles southwest of the city centre and two miles across countryside from where the girl's body had been found. The occupants inside, although it was a late hour, were beyond tired the nerves stretched to breaking point by events of the past few days. Thinking that any knock, any sound at the door could be her coming home, it had been wrenched open immediately as they'd heard it, only to find two police officers on the doorstep. As gently as they could, the officers told the family what they dreaded in their heart of hearts, yet had slowly prepared themselves for at the same time. I'm terribly sorry we found a girl's body. We believe it's Lynn's. 
A member of the family at number one, the Siddons family, who we will come to meet, was requested to accompany police to the Royal Infirmary to identify the body, and the job fell to Barry Siddons, the uncle of the missing girl, who immediately volunteered. He was taken there and did the job quietly, without any fuss, confirming that sadly, the body was indeed that of his missing niece, 16-year-old Lynn Siddons. Now undoubtedly this is a horrendous experience for Barry, as it must be for anybody to do that, and it was something that he never spoke about following the event, and has never spoken about since. Yet although the girl now had a name, Lynn Siddons, who'd been missing since the previous Monday, the 3rd of April, police had only since the previous day, the Saturday, taken her disappearance as anything more serious than a teenage runaway going off in a strop, or off with a boyfriend somewhere, and this was only following the intervention of a sympathetic Member of Parliament, as you'll come to hear. Maria Lynn Siddons, or Lynn as she was known by, had been born on the 22nd of November 1961 in Derby City Hospital, the illegitimate child of 16-year-old Gail Siddons, who'd fallen pregnant after a tryst with a married local man had left her expecting. At first, Gail had managed to keep her pregnancy hidden from her parents and her siblings, as things like unwed or teenage single mothers were frowned upon back then, and her folks had an old-fashioned sense of morality. But there came a time where she couldn't hide it from her mother, who'd known something was up, and her pregnancy was confirmed by the family doctor. Now, her mother's love shone through here, however, and after scooting around to the father's house once she'd extracted his name from an unwilling Gail, Florence, or Flo Siddons as we'll refer to her going forward from here, when and gave him a right piece of her mind, it must have been like being pitied by Mr T, it really must have. She then immediately with a focused mind went back to her daughter and what was best to do, but first Gail's father Fred had to be told. Now reportedly Fred cried himself to sleep the night he was told, and he didn't speak a single word to Gail for the following three months. Yet when she was admitted to hospital in labour and had had the baby, which required surgical assistance due to Gail's tiny stature and a longer stay in hospital, he melted when he and Flo came to visit her. Kissing his daughter and holding his £8 5-ounce granddaughter, Fred looked absolutely smitten and Gail knew that she'd been forgiven. Indeed, Fred even took it upon himself to attend to the baby's registration, opting without consultation to his other family members on the name Lynn for the baby. Now it was a name that they each liked, and so Lynn stuck. At first, due to Gail's age, adoption for Lynn was considered, and she was half-promised to a couple from Nottingham. Yet by the time Lynn's christening rolled around in May 1962, and the first name Maria had been added as tribute to her godparents, Flo's sister Frida and her Italian-born husband Pino, all thoughts of giving Lynn up were long gone, and Lynn instead grew up into a happy family unit where as she grew, she considered Flo and Fred her mother and father, and Gail, her biological mother, as an older sister. Flo and Fred in turn looked on Lynn as a daughter, and the three were extremely close. Even when Gail married a man named John Halford a few years later, when Lynn was offered to go and live with her birth mother and John on a permanent basis, she considered the family dynamic to just be the same, and stayed instead in the home that she was happiest in, number one Carlisle Street, with Fred and Flo, although many weekends and holidays were spent with Gail and John. They were a proper, close, happy family, this one. As she developed through school, beginning with Sinfin Primary and then later St Thomas More Catholic School, Lynn was a happy, imaginative and bright child with a kind and generous nature who was a natural athlete, excelling at swimming, running and hockey. Although an able student, especially at art and English composition due to her active imagination, Lynn wouldn't knuckle down and apply herself to school and so missed out a potential in many subjects. She would often truant, much preferring instead to save her enthusiasm for being away on trips around the UK with her family, abled by Fred's job with British Rail, following the latest fashions, attending ballroom dancing classes with her best friends Pam Stocks and Kath Kavanagh, and listening to and collecting music, of which she was a massive fan and had a large collection of music from the 50s and 60s, the likes of Billy Fury, Del Shannon and Elvis. 
Lynn also had a good singing voice herself, and she could even reportedly yodel, which must take some bloody doing to do, mustn't it? Hey, imagine how do you learn to yodel? When she wasn't doing any of these, Lynn would be helping Flo with one of the charitable ventures that she was involved with, looking in on elderly neighbours that she'd befriended or buying presents for her friends and family. This is the type of girl that Lynn was, thoughtful and generous. She was an attractive girl and well-liked, having a string of boyfriends, but none of them serious. But I imagine it's hard to earn a living in Derby if professional yodeler is your choice of career and with a reluctance to apply herself in the classroom. Lynn left school in 1977 at age 16 before taking any of her O-levels. She remained at home, passing the time involved in the various ventures I described before for the remainder of that year, which also sadly included the sudden death of her beloved grandfather Fred at Christmas 1977. But by the spring of 1978, things were looking up, because by then, Lynn had found herself both a job and a boyfriend that she was keen on. Lynn had obtained employment packing cooked meats working on the butchery department of the Co-op Wholesale Society in Derby's Osmaston Road, the first foray into the world of work that was considered a mere stepping stone, a temporary role until she found herself something a bit more suited to her talent and personality. She was due to start her role at the Co-op on Monday, April 10th, 1978. So having just enjoyed a week's break in Milan, where she and her grandmother had been visiting family, and given herself a final week off before starting full-time employment, Lynn, Flo, and Lynn's aunt, Cynthia Smith, headed out into the city centre of Derby on the morning of Monday the 3rd of April, Lynn needing to go shopping for some new clothes to make a good impression for her first day. She had a few things to get and so separated from her grandmother and aunt at about 11.30am saying that she'd make her own way back home later that afternoon. She had another reason for being home early that day because that afternoon Lynn had arranged a date with her new beau, a young man named Bobby Muir and the two had been planning to go to the Easter Fair later that evening so she wanted to spend time getting ready before Bobby called for her at home. Waving goodbye to her grandmother and aunt Lynn walked off and headed into the Littlewoods department store and they set off in the opposite direction. By the time Flo and Cynthia arrived back in Carlisle Street at about 2.30pm that afternoon, there was no sign of Lynn, although they noticed that a distinctive red purse was on the kitchen windowsill, so she couldn't have yet left for the fair. Thinking perhaps that she'd instead nipped over to see one of her friends who lived nearby, they thought nothing of this, although it did cross their mind that there'd been no note left explaining her whereabouts, something that the conscientious Lynn would usually do. By 4pm, Cynthia had headed back to her home in Derby, and Flo was cracking on with making the evening meal, yet her mind kept going back to where Lynn was, and why wasn't there a note left? She always left a note. And why hadn't she taken her beloved black and white collie dog, Lassie, with her? By 4.30pm, Flo, a proper woman of action as I'm sure you'll come to see, decided that she had to do something and putting her coat on, set off out of the house into her first porter call, a house a short distance further along Carlisle Road, number 27, where Lynn had taken to being a regular caller at in the past couple of months. The dilapidated house, and it was like a bad tooth in a mouth full of clean choppers this one, was the home of the Brooks family, 33-year-old Michael Brooks, his 31-year-old wife Doris, or Dot as everyone knew her, Dot's 15-year-old son from a previous relationship, Fitzroy, or Roy as he was known, and the couple's daughter, Tracy. For the past couple of months, Lynn had been a regular caller to the house along with a friend of hers, Pat Broadhead, stemming from when the two girls had met the Brookses after they'd babysat for their next-door neighbour. Although the Brooks's son Roy was just a year younger than Lynn and Pat and was friends with them, and indeed had been Pat's boyfriend for a short time, the two girls were equally enthralled in the company of Dot Brooks. This was an adult who treated them as friends and made them feel as equal adults, taking an interest in them, exchanging clothes and gossip with them, someone sound to hang out with, and making number 27 a place of appeal. Lynn had become friends with Roy also through his relationship with Pat, 
perhaps taking some pity on the lad as he was a frequent target for bullying due to his illiteracy, his underdeveloped frame and the colour of his skin, for both Roy's mother and biological father were black. As mentioned in the previous episode when I made the same point, back in the late 1970s, attitudes towards ethnicity weren't what they are, or at least should be today. So as the house was just a few doors along from home, this was where Flo called first to see if they'd seen sight or sound of Lynn. She'd also remembered that during their long trip from Milan on the train, Lynn had several times mentioned that Roy Brooks had mentioned to her the possibility of obtaining work on one of the farms in the Sinfin area. Perhaps Lynn had gone along with him to do this. When Dot answered the door, Flo asked her if she'd seen Lynn that afternoon, and Dot replied that she hadn't, but she thought that she may have been off with Roy to look for this part-time job on one of the farms, as Michael Brooks, or Mick as he was known, had mentioned that he'd spoken to a farmer looking for youngsters to do just this. However, Roy had been back only a short time before Flo had called that afternoon, without Lynn, and had headed off out again somewhere. Flo returned back to her own house for tea, but by this time worried, couldn't finish her meal, and decided to head out once again, this time to the home of Lynn's friend Pat, again just a short distance away in Thackeray Street. Pat had herself been out that day, and so had not seen Lynn either, so back home went Flo, by now her mind racing. She wouldn't have gone off to the fair without a purse, and if Lynn had been out with Roy that afternoon, then why hadn't she taken Lassie? By later that evening, having called around her children, her sons Keith and Barry, daughter Cynthia and Lynn's mother Gail to see if they'd seen her but to no avail, Flo was beside herself and decided once more to head up to the Brooks house at number 27. Perhaps Roy Brooks was back now and could shed some light on where Lynn had gone to. Roy was there when Flo knocked once again and she began to quiz him about when he'd last seen Lynn and where they'd gone. Roy admitted that Lynn had called earlier that afternoon having been stood up for a date with Bobby and he'd asked her to accompany him on his trip to go and seek out work on the farm some two miles away. She'd agreed, and he'd waited for her to go home and change her footwear, before she returned to get him, and the two set off just after 2pm that afternoon. The same time as Mick Brooks, who was heading out to see his mother, and who'd walked the opposite way to Roy and Lynn down Carlisle Street, turning and waving the pair off. The pair had headed from here onto Thackeray Street, and then across the local golf course and onto a footpath that ran southeast across Sinfin Moor towards the Trent and Mersey Canal, where it adjoined the Canal Towpath. As they were walking along this path, alongside a spot known locally as Red Wood, Roy had needed to urinate, and so had gone some way into the woods to do so. When he'd finished and came out, Lynn had vanished. Now Flo wasn't sure about this at all, she knew that area well, and the surrounding area of Red Wood was all open fields, so surely he would have seen her walking away in such a short time frame. How far could she have got, unless he's having like an Austin Powers piss or something? She put this to Roy, asking which way Lynn must have gone, and he was adamant he hadn't seen her going, she'd just vanished. With now a growing seed of suspicion and a terrible fear that some harm had come to Lynn, Flo walked away from the Brookses, unable to say anything else. She headed straight for the telephone kiosk at the end of the road and rang each of her children in turn, asking them once again had they seen or heard from Lynn, and when they each said they hadn't, rallying them all around. It was what the close-knit Siddons family did in times of trouble. By 10pm that evening, each of the family agreed that the lengthening absence of Lynn was completely out of character for her. Something must have happened to prevent her from returning home, or at least contacting one of them. So they decided to contact police. Now beginning here, the police attitude towards Lynn's disappearance kind of sets the tone for them throughout not just the episode, but the entire tale. And it's fair to say that they won't come across as the best through it. That's not me being overly critical, the facts will speak for themselves, which I'll begin to tell you about following a word from the episode sponsors, as this episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Now whenever I need a break from the writing and research that goes into the show, i found that Best Fiends is what I'm winding down to, 
It's a fun and colourful puzzle strategy game that challenges you and makes you think about your moves, but it's a casual game that anyone can play and finds you easily wanting to play on and progress further through levels ranging from the frozen hills to the endless desert, collecting colourful and lively little characters such as Tantrum and Quinky as you go along. It's updated constantly with new themed challenges and events, so it always has a fresh new feel and looks slick, and I've found myself more and more going back to it when I have a spare 10 minutes or so, passing that next level and thinking, well I'll just get through that one now, And before you know it, you're several levels up and you'll really wonder where time's gone. You'll be that hooked on it. It's a perfect pastime in these times of social distancing. It's one way you can stay connected to friends online as you can play against them or you can play it by yourself. You don't even need to be connected online to enjoy Best Fiends. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5 star rated mobile puzzle game is a must play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Best Fiends, friends without the R, Best Fiends. It was Gail Halford who spoke to police that evening to inform them that Lynn hadn't come home, and in credit to Derbyshire Constabulary, a uniformed officer did arrive at the house shortly afterwards. He listened to what Flo and the family had to tell him, but he didn't seem unduly perturbed, adopting the attitude, well, scores of teenage girls go missing each week, most of them are off with a boyfriend, and most will turn up safe and well in a few days' time. This was despite the family telling him that Lynn hadn't taken any spare clothing with her, she hadn't even taken a purse, and was the last person who would just up and leave like that. This was a conscientious girl from a happy home. He simply made a note of her details and told the family that it was too dark to search anywhere then, plus where do you start looking, and police would have a look for her first thing in the morning before leaving. That evening, Gail stayed with her mother and even slept in the same bed to comfort her. It was a place Lynn had slept for the same purpose ever since Fred had died the previous year, and as both of them lay there, far too worried to sleep, listening to the howling wind outside on the bitterly cold evening, decided that they had to be doing something. In the early hours of that Tuesday, both got up and dressed, then went out to the telephone kiosk and rang first Keith Siddons and then Barry. Sensing the distress in Flo and Gale, and and themselves worried about their niece, each of them came back to Carlisle Street, arriving at around the same time. From here they took a flashlight each, and accompanied by Lynn's dog Lassie, headed out along the route that Roy Brooks had told Flo that Lynn had last been seen on, culminating at Redwood, a place the two men knew well as they'd played there as children. Although they searched the area thoroughly, There was no trace of Lynn. Later that Tuesday, police did carry out a token search for Lynn, with an officer and a dog searching the Redwood area and walking around the neighbouring fields, but finding nothing. The police also visited number 27 Carlisle Street and spoke to Roy Brooks, as he was the last person known to have seen Lynn, but he repeated what he'd told Flo, and police seemed satisfied with that. But later that afternoon, Roy and Doc came knocking on the door of number one, this time with a slightly different story to tell. This time, Roy imparted that when he came out of the wood, he still hadn't seen Lynn, but he had seen a white car parked a short distance away, although he was vague about its make and model. Again, knowing the area well, and knowing that there was no way any vehicle could get anywhere near Redwood unless it was a tractor, Flo called Roy a liar, and Dot ushered him away home. She was still brooding on this when her daughter Cynthia arrived a short time later, and after telling her what Roy had now said, the two decided to once again head up to number 27 to question Roy thoroughly. When they got there, Roy answered the door, telling Flo and Cynthia that his mother and stepfather were upstairs in the bath together. Now, unless you've got a Kardashian bath, it's not romantic at all, Sherimon, is it? You get the taps, it's bloody nightmare. As soon as they started asking him further about this bollocks car that he'd seen, Dot and Mick Brooks appeared downstairs, and Mick Brooks immediately began butting in whenever Cynthia and Flo would ask Roy any question. 
almost as though he wanted to keep control of the conversation and not let Roy, who was mumbling and stumbling, clearly highly nervous from saying too much. Then Mick Brooks dropped a bit of a bombshell on the two women. He claimed that in his opinion, Lynn had run off with Bobby Muir and that he was sure of this because Lynn used to sneak out at night to meet him and head off to an empty house in the Harrington Street area of Sinfin for sex. Now not only did both Flo and Cynthia think this statement was a load of old cock, because Lynn slept next to Flo each night after all, and there weren't any empty houses in Harrington Street. His suggestion that Lynn was a loose girl, shall we say, had riled both of them, and they told Brooks that he was wrong. That's what you think, but I know differently, he sneered. Unable to fathom why both Roy and now Mick Brooks had lied to them, the two once again returned home, puzzling and theorising over it. But there wasn't really any time for doing this, Lynn had to be found. So that evening, armed with her photograph, the Siddons family headed off to the fair that she was supposed to have attended, asking anyone, stallholders and customers alike, if they'd seen her. But no one had. They were at the fair each night until it packed up later that week asking the same questions. Whereas in the day, they were out scouring the muddy fields and lanes of Sinfin Moor and the surrounding area. They showed Lynn's picture to everyone they came across and recruited friends and neighbours to help out doing the same thing. Even Roy Brooks came knocking at the Siddons' door one evening, offering his help, and trying to see past the lie that he'd told. Flo even gave him a passport photograph of Lynn that he could show around to people. By the Thursday following Lynn's disappearance, Bobby Muir had been traced. He'd come to the Siddons' house late that evening and had explained that he was wanted by the police for a series of thefts, which was why he was keeping a low profile and why he'd stood Lynn up for their date on the day she disappeared. Now, although feeling in their hearts that he wasn't involved and the concern that he had for Lynn was genuine, Gail went and informed police that he was there and Bobby Muir was arrested. He was taken to Pear Tree Police Station in Derby and questioned for the remainder of the night, and although he admitted to the thefts, managed to convince detectives that he hadn't seen Lynn on the day she disappeared, nor had had anything to do with the disappearance and was ruled out of the inquiry. He was to some time later forgive Flo and Gale for handing him in, understanding that it was an act born purely of desperation, and they became firm friends. Now, Bobby Muir had never been involved in Lynn's disappearance as far as the Siddons family were concerned. Their minds kept returning to Roy Brooks as being involved, and they would constantly mention this to police when they spoke to them each day, telling them about the lies both he and Mick Brooks had told when they telephoned them, requesting an update in what police were doing to find Lynn. Which was the best part of bugger all, really. The police were still of the impression that Lynn was off somewhere with a boyfriend living it up, despite the possibility of this being refuted by her family. Because it was classed as simply a case of a runaway teenager, there'd been no publicity about Lynn, no mention of the missing girl in any of the local or national newspapers that entire week, which still happens today, doesn't it? Out of all of the people who go missing, only a handful ever capture the wider attention, don't they? It's a proper bloody axe for me to grind, that is. And it was the same with the Siddons family. Flo had even reportedly offered to pay for advertisements in the local newspapers, but police were adamant that it would ultimately do no good and, be, and just be a waste of time and money. But the Siddons believed it would, of course it would, and getting nowhere with police, Cynthia had an idea. On the Friday after Lynn had disappeared, she approached her MP for the constituency of Derby North, a writer and TV producer named Philip Whitehead, who held regular Friday evening surgeries in his constituency, and it's at this point that he comes into our tale. After hearing Cynthia's story and the family's efforts to find Lynn, the sympathetic MP, words you don't often put together those, aren't they, was appalled that there'd been no publicity given to the missing girl and set about making that right. It's amazing what a word in the right ear can do, isn't it? The following day, Saturday 8th of April 1978, descriptions of Lynn were broadcast all over the Derby local radio and an appeal went out over the loudspeakers at the baseball ground where Derby County were playing at home that weekend. But crucially, the local press had finally gotten wind 
and the front page of the Derby Evening Telegraph that day contained the following report under the banner headline Concern over Derby Girl 16, Lynn Missing Since Monday. The report reads as follows. Concern is growing for a missing girl who disappeared from her Derby home on Monday without money or a change of clothes. 16-year-old Lynn Siddons of Carlisle Street was last seen when she went out at 2pm on Monday. Derby police have now exhausted all inquiries among friends and relatives and are now making a public appeal for help. Lynn, who has just finished school, was at first thought to have been with a man when she disappeared, but police have traced him and ruled him out of the inquiry. Detective Inspector Jim Payne, the head of Peartree's CID, said today, We are now becoming increasingly concerned for Lynn's safety, especially in view of the fact that when she left, she took no money or clothing apart from what she was wearing. Anyone who's seen her, or who knows where she might be, could help us and her parents by coming forward. Lynn, who's never left home before, is about 5 foot 5 inches tall, of slim build with auburn shoulder length hair and a pale complexion. She was wearing blue jeans, a blue and white shirt, a red t-shirt and a blue and white sports coat. Any information about Lynn can be passed to the police on Derby 40224. Now this surely should have been out there days before, shouldn't it? It shouldn't have taken media and political pressure to make the police appeal this and be seen to be doing something. Perhaps if they'd been a bit more bothered, for want of a better word, from the off, then Lynn may have been found sooner and the Siddons family may not have searched in vain and gone through as many days of not knowing. Instead, as we've heard, Lynn was found the day after this appeal was printed before the fact there was a missing girl had had chance to sink into the wider public's conscious. Found butchered almost beyond belief. Flo Siddons said later, speaking of when detectives knocked on the door to tell the family that they'd found a body that was almost certainly Lynn's. I knew some harm had come to her. I even had a dream about her lying under bushes. She would never have gone away without telling us. After hearing nothing from her for six days, I knew in my heart she must be dead. Lynn's funeral was held some three weeks after her death, a moving service attended by her family and more than 160 of her school friends who crowded into St George and Old Soldier Saints Church in Derby before attending a cremation at nearby Mark Eaton. The family had been presented with an inscribed vase by Lynn's friends and it was chosen to mark her final resting place alongside her beloved grandfather Fred in the cemetery in the nearby village of Melbourne. On such an occasion there was hardly a person attending who didn't weep for their lost friend or loved one, but there was one person who didn't, Flo Siddons. Now of course this wasn't because she didn't care, she was devastated beyond words, but she'd already shed her tears that day at the funeral parlour when she discovered that she couldn't have a last look at Lynn the funeral directors having taken the sensitive decision to already affix the coffin lid, wanting to spare the family from their last remaining memory of Lynn being blighted as one with her face having been attacked by insects and animals while laying in a lonely resting place. Reportedly it was the only time in her children's lives that they'd ever seen their mother cry, but once Flo had wept, the remarkable woman's toughness, and you'll come to see how remarkable she was, returned and determination began to seep back in. Determination to see Lynn's killer brought to justice. As the funeral procession had set off from number one Carlisle Street that morning, families had stood outside each of the houses as it passed, curtains drawn in respect and mourning, and their heads bowed. All except at one house, where the curtains were open, the pavement outside was bare, and loud rock music blared out from inside. Number 27. Why were they not outside showing their respects to a girl who'd been a friend to them, who'd bought each of the occupants presents from a Milan holiday and had delivered them just the day before she went missing? Because, by the time of Lynn's funeral, 15-year-old Roy Brooks had been arrested, had confessed, and charged with her murder, was awaiting trial. That's why. Did you see that coming? Yeah, well, there's a bit more to things than that.
Once it had been confirmed that the body was indeed that of Lynn, as Professor Usher was still discovering his findings at the post-mortem and preparing his final report, police, perhaps wanting to save face and hit the ground running in the investigation, immediately looked back on the information that the Siddons family had given them through the six days Lynn was missing, and were immediately around to number 27 Carlisle Street. There, they arrested and took Roy Brooks to Peartree Police Station, where he was accompanied by his stepfather Michael, as his hysterical mother Dot was on the telephone to her mother, to Michael Brooks's mother and stepfather, and to his brother Bob, who all made their way around. Two households in the same street, families all converging upon them in times of trouble. When Roy and his stepfather arrived at Peartree Station, Roy was taken into an interview room and was questioned by Detective Inspector Arthur Padmore and Sergeant Peter Davidson. For more than an hour they questioned the youth, but couldn't get much sense out of him, such was the uncontrollable sobbing of the pathetic-looking small figure. When he was coherent, between his fits of convulsing sobbing, Roy repeated over and over the story that he'd told Flo some six days before. He'd been with Lynn on the path, had gone into Redwood to urinate, and she'd vanished when he came out. Such a state was he in, that police thought it may help if he were able to speak to his stepfather for a few minutes for him to calm the boy down, and taking a ten minute break in interview proceedings, allowed Michael Brooks into the room to have a word with Roy in private, to comfort him, just the two of them. When the interviewing officers returned to the interview room, Whatever Mick Brooks had said to the boy seemed to have worked, because Roy seemed now composed and ready to talk, although he did exclaim, Can Dad tell you? or Can you tell them, Dad? Words to that effect, there are conflicting reports as to what he said exactly. But he began talking, and although there were long drawn out pauses, and it came out hesitantly, Roy Brooks then confessed to the murder of Lynn Siddons. The tale he had to tell police was as follows. Roy claimed that when he and Lynn were out on their walk, Lynn had stopped and had groped him between the legs, taunting him for being impotent. She'd exposed her breasts to him, encouraging him to touch her, and when he wouldn't, she jeered at him, calling him nigger and stupid black bastard. Now slurs such as these had enraged Roy, so he grabbed the carving knife he'd been carrying at the time, the why he was carrying such a knife he didn't explain, and he began stabbing Lynn with it, stabbing her about four times he'd thought, until the knife handle broke. When she was dead, he dragged the body deep into nearby undergrowth and hoped that it wouldn't be found. By this time frightened at what he'd done, he'd thrown the broken blade into the canal and had run off. No one else had been there, and no one had witnessed the murder, he added. As Roy Brooks could not read or write, in the presence of Michael Brooks, his statement was transcribed by one of the interviewing officers, and at 1.55am, after a three and a half hour interrogation, it was read back to him and Roy Brooks signed it in his barely legible handwriting. Later that same day, Monday 10th of April 1978, the day Lynn Siddons was supposed to be starting her first job, her confessed killer appeared at a special sitting of a juvenile court in Derby, where he was remanded in custody to the juvenile wing of Leicester Prison to await trial for a murder, which was scheduled to begin in November 1978. With more than six months on remand awaiting trial, Roy retreated completely into his shell in prison. Already a quiet and nervous boy, he now became further withdrawn and uncommunicative and wouldn't speak to prisoners or prison staff alike. On one occasion, he wouldn't even speak to his mother Dot when she visited him, being too upset. Even communications about his upcoming trial with his appointed solicitor, Stephen Chittenden, drew a blank. Roy just answered sir to everything, and this, amongst many things, concerned Stephen Chittenden greatly. He was already having grave doubts about the case based on the evidence from the post-mortem, the interview that had led to Roy's confession and the appearance of Roy himself, but concerned that due to Roy's demeanour, this was perhaps more a matter for doctors rather than lawyers to look at, brought on board psychiatric consultant Dr Tom Dorman from Derbyshire's Pastures Hospital. 
Now, knowing it would be a laborious process, you've got to chip away at a protective shell like Roy had built around him, and would involve building a rapport with the boy, gaining his trust and his confidence. Dr. Dorman did just this. It took three long sessions of warm and sensitive, relaxed conversation with the boy before Roy was anywhere near ready to talk about anything. But when he was eventually ready to discuss the murder, then fuck me, did he come out with a different story. In an interview conducted at 1pm in Leicester Prison on Saturday 7th of October, with Stephen Chittenden asking the questions and Dr. Dorman transcribing, Roy now claimed that he and Lynn had met up with a third person on their walk that day, who'd met them before they got anywhere near the canal, although at that stage of the interview, Roy wasn't naming who the other person was. He now claimed that the three had walked along the path in single file, and Roy said at this point he was scared because he knew what was going to happen when they met up with a third person. It had been talked about several times in advance. The third person Roy eventually named was his stepfather, Michael Brooks. Roy claimed that his stepfather, who had an obsession with Jack the Ripper, had often spoken to him about getting women, he described, and when they'd been out together walking several times in the past, any woman that his stepfather had spotted, he'd suggested to Roy that he would like to get her. To demonstrate his hatred of women, he had a habit of sticking pornographic pictures of women to the walls of his room, which he would then proceed to stab and slash, or throw knives at, allowing himself a congratulatory score if one of these stuck in the breasts or genitalia of the woman depicted. Roy claimed that his stepfather was so hell-bent on making this fantasy a reality that he'd even threatened to get his mother Dot on numerous occasions, which had terrified Roy, so he'd agreed that his stepfather's urging to lure Lynn down to the canal that Monday on the pretense of accompanying him to look for a farm job with it pre-arranged that his stepfather would intercept them at a spot on the footpath. Roy then described the murder as follows. When they got near the bushes, he said to Lynn, I've got something for you, and she saw the knife in his hand. They went into the bushes and then he grabbed Lynn. He was behind her, he held her over the mouth. He told me to stick the knife in with a carving knife that he'd given me. I did nothing at first, I was scared, I didn't want to hurt Lynn at any time. Father told me again to stick it in, and he was getting angry. I didn't want to hurt her. I didn't run away as I was frightened. He might have hurt my mam. He'd said so before. The carving knife broke. I did it sideways so it would break. Father told me to get the other knife out, so I got it out, and he told me to stick it in. He was still holding her from behind. I did it lightly. I didn't want to hurt her, and Lynn fell on the floor. Once she'd fallen to the floor, I didn't touch her again. Dad took the knife from me, and he was sticking it in her. Then he held her under some water. I was trying not to look. Now alongside the first statement, the single-page statement that Roy had made on the night of his arrest, before the post-mortem results were even back, this account made much more sense. It explained the inconsistency of the knife wounds to Lynn, the series of 11 pinprick type wounds that were Roy's, against the 4 inch deep stabs inflicted allegedly by Michael Brooks. It explained why Lynn had traces of stagnant water in her lungs, and it explained what had puzzled most. How did a boy weighing just 6 stone 6 pounds, who was barely 5 feet in height and appearing more like a 12 year old than a 15 year old, how did he overpower and murder a girl who was five inches taller than him, two stone heavier, and had been witnessed previously being able to lift Roy off the ground and swing him around by his arms, then drag the murdered girl such a distance into the undergrowth that she wasn't discovered for six days? Already having a problem with this, Stephen Chittenden had even been down to the murder scene and conducted a test of his own accompanied by the barrister assigned to the case and another female barrister. They had attempted to reenact moving the body by actually dragging the female lawyer through the undergrowth to where Lynn was found, and all agreed it would have been near impossible for Roy to have done this. He simply wouldn't have had the strength to do it. But the burly, powerful Michael Brooks would have had no problems. 
As you can imagine, this was quite a damning statement, and it was released to both the police and counsel for the prosecution. Police immediately went back around to 27 Carlisle Street and spoke to Michael Brooks about the new account his stepson was giving, but he dismissed the claims as complete nonsense, and police were themselves somewhat sceptical, because it wasn't exactly unheard of for someone accused of murder who'd confessed to a crime to completely go vault face and change this story to implicate someone else. Think back to David Burgess, who we met a few episodes ago in the Beast of Beanham episodes. So Michael Brooks was not arrested, he remained free, and was actually called as the main witness for the Crown at Roy's trial. The trial of Fitzroy Patrick Joseph Brooks opened on Monday the 6th of November 1978 at Nottinghamshire Hall before Mr Justice Mace, where he pleaded not guilty to the murder of Lynn Siddons. But as the trial progressed, despite the court being told by prosecuting counsel Mr Graham Hamilton QC that Roy had twice made signed statements saying that he'd stabbed Lynn, it became obvious to the court that even if he'd been involved in the murder, there is no way he could have acted alone. He wouldn't have been physically able to. The examining pathologist who'd conducted the post-mortem on Lynn, Dr Alan Usher, detailed the wounds he discovered to the girl, the multiple stab wounds of varying depth and severity, and crucially, he gave Lynn's cause of death as asphyxia, contributed to by shock and hemorrhage from these wounds. Roy had made no mention of strangling Lynn, and nor the fact that she'd been forced face down into water. Not in his first statement, anyway. It was also pointed out that Lynn was somewhat larger and heavier than the accused, and would have been capable of putting up at least some sort of struggle, but there was no evidence for this. It was quite telling for the jury to look across at the five-foot-tall, six-and-a-half-stone figure when hearing this. The police officer who'd interviewed Roy on the night of his arrest, Detective Inspector Arthur Padmore, also gave testimony to the differing stories that Roy had told from his initial interview to his arrest upon the discovery of Lynn's body. And then, of course, the jury heard of the second statement he'd given about the events of the murder, the one that named his stepfather, Michael Brooks, as Lynn's killer. Although Roy did hesitate a couple of times, and sometimes he had to search for the right word to use, he was unshakable in this story and it never wavered from the account he told Stephen Chittenden and Dr Dorman in Leicester Prison. The story that it was pointed out matched more closely the findings from the post-mortem report and arguably credibility. So if Roy was a convincing witness, Michael Brooks was an incredibly poor one. A book that's been a thoroughly useful source whilst researching and writing the tale, Wild Justice contains the dialogue between Brooks in the witness box and defence lawyer Douglas Draycott QC, and it makes for fascinating reading. If you can get hold of it, grab it and read it. It would take far too long to recount it here, but the book is a worthwhile read. The crux of Brooks' story was that at the time Roy was allegedly murdering Lynn, he was a couple of miles away from the murder scene in Sinfin trying to see his mother. But as he was taken through the timings of his day, the crucial half one to half three in the afternoon, it was established by skillful cross-examination that no one could actually alibi Brooks. He admitted passing his mother's house no less than three times that day, including going to and coming back from signing on in Derby, and never once knocking on the door to see if she was in, which he had claimed she would certainly be as Mondays were her laundry day and he habitually went there on a Monday. His reason for not knocking each time that day, he claimed, was that his stepfather may be at home at the time, even though he was in work and was never there on a Monday because that's when Brooks visited, and he had no wish to speak to his stepfather due to there being long-standing bad blood between them. Brooks couldn't account for the reason he simply didn't telephone his mother to that day to see if she was home, instead of having three wasted journeys. He couldn't recall the names of either the farmer or the farm that he told Roy were seeking workers, and he claimed to have been just wandering aimlessly around Sinfin at the time of the murder, only later meeting Roy near Redwood as he was allegedly heading back from killing Lynn. He steadfast denied Roy's claims in his second statement, but couldn't explain them or even give a satisfactory answer, 
even though it was put to him four times that Roy had said, Can Dad tell you what happened? Because he already knew and could put it better than the boy. In the ten minutes that they talked unsupervised, it was put to Brooks that he persuaded Roy to take the entire blame for the killing, thinking that as a minor, he would spend just a few years in a remand home against Brooks receiving a definite life sentence spent on Rule 43. Brooks either denied it all or could give no answer. Now his testimony was considered such an utter shamble of bollocks and Brooks presented such an opinion to the court that when the court adjourned for lunch, Mr Justice Mays actually ordered that Brooks should not be allowed to wander about during the lunch adjournment and instead food was to be provided for him in the dock by police with the judge saying, I just do not think that it's right he should be on the free. Very telling that isn't it? Yet Brooks wasn't the one on trial. In his summing up on the fourth and final day of the trial, Mr Justice Mace highlighted several points that had been raised for the jury to hear during evidence, such as the stature of the accused Roy Brooks, and the fact that Lynn was taller, heavier and more powerful than Roy, could he be expected to have done that to her alone? He pointed out that tests had been conducted with various weights, and even a member of the defence staff that showed that it was almost impossible for Roy Brooks to have moved Lynn's body alone. More than once he reminded the jury that they may not think this was a one-person murder, that there may have been someone else there, and admitting it would make sense due to the medical evidence from Dr Usher. But then that would mean the original police statements were completely untrue, and the point he laboured across was to remind the jury of the cross-examination of Michael Brooks on his alibi, and the fact he could not account for more than an hour of his movements at the crucial time of the murder, saying, now, there is evidence which, if you would believe it, would demonstrate that the accused stepfather, Michael Richard Brooks, was an accomplice. But accepting the difficulty of accepting evidence of an accomplice without corroboration, Mr Justice Mace added, But the stepfather is not being tried before you. On Thursday 9th of November, after deliberating for just 20 minutes, the jury returned a unanimous verdict of not guilty, a verdict that Mr Justice Myers told them he agreed with. Roy was, however, at the order of the court, placed into care for his own safety and protection, heading to the pastures hospital under care of Dr Dorman. Michael Brooks, however, was free to go despite almost everyone in that court convinced that he had culpability in the murder. It transpired later that even Brooks's own mother, who was present in court throughout the trial, expected him to be arrested and charged after proceedings had ended, but he wasn't, and when Brooks spoke to reporters outside the court, he had an air of arrogance about him as he told them, I know the jury's decision points to me as the guilty man. I don't give a hoot if tongues may wag. I know I was not there when the girl was killed, and I did not plan it. There may have been another person there as well as Roy, but it certainly wasn't me. I've been made a scapegoat and been victimised. I've only been out once in the last four days because of threats made against me and my family. I had nothing to do with Lynn's murder. Not one of these allegations can be proved. I don't honestly know why Roy made these allegations, but it sounds to me as if something has been put into the lad's head. The following day, Brooks told the Daily Mirror newspaper, I want him home. I forgive him, but I'll never forget until my name is cleared. I'm prepared to have Roy home for his mother's sake. I've no idea why he made this terrible allegation. Perhaps it was to protect someone who was with him, or get at me. There have been rows about him playing truants and staying out late. Now I'm sure we can patch things up. Yet it transpired some days later, again in the same newspaper, that the Brooks family had been requested to give permission for doctors to administer a truth serum to Roy when he was initially placed upon remand, long before any accusations against his stepfather emerged, and both had denied their permission when this had been requested, with Michael Brooks going so far as to tell the Daily Mirror when asked why. If they're going to work like that, this country is getting like Russia. I don't believe in that sort of thing, I just have no faith in the medical profession. On the subject of faith, 
Others who'd lost faith somewhat were the Siddons family. They felt that the police had let them down, and as it emerged following the trial that Michael Brooks, who they, and almost everyone who'd been in that courtroom believed was a killer walking free, that all testimony and circumstantial evidence they had heard pointed to was not going to be arrested. They felt let down by the court. So about a month after the conclusion of the trial, just before Christmas 1978, Flo, Gail and Cynthia Siddons stood at Lynn's memorial plaque in Melbourne Cemetery and there and then made a vow between themselves that no matter how long it took, whatever difficulty they faced, they wouldn't rest until Lynn's killer faced justice for a murder and Michael Brooks paid the price for his actions. And we shall find out what exactly the Siddons family went about doing in the next episode because that's a perfect place to leave this one and save the rest for another day. It is a remarkable tale this one, it really is. It's certainly not one to scrimp on at all. So as there's more to come, I'm not doing my usual wrap up here just yet. And I'll bugger off and get cracking on for the next part right now. You can, of course, get in touch with me should you want to discuss part one of a family's fight, Lynn's story. There's an episode thread up as ever in the show's Facebook discussion group. Or you can reach out through any of the show's channels to do so. I'll always be glad to discuss anyway. That's about it from me today then, folks. I'll catch you next Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you guys good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.